Technobiotic. Well, so so there's actually what I think are two macro trends that are intersecting. So the first is basically what I just talked about. I, I boil that down to what I call the primacy of the customer, right? So so that's this one macro trend that's affecting kind of how organizations create value. But the other one is what I call the the primacy of the algorithm. And and the foundation here is that that in the the rise of the industrial age, these industrial barons needed effectively robots. They needed they need the ability to produce these mass products reliably, consistently. Welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast, Episode 1. Join us on our journey to find humanity among technology. With your hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and Shane Carlson, as well as our special guest Charles Araujo. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Technobiotic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Shane Carlson. I also have today with me Laura Araujo and Matt Drew. Hi guys, how are you doing? Great. Doing great. I'm very excited to uh, you know be launching our first real episode together and not just stringing together a bunch of clips of us talking about ourselves. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, you say that, but... I am a singer yeah. and I like no, talking you know, about myself. <laughs> See, <laughs> podcasting is a perfect medium. Uh, but no, it it really is exciting. I know we've all been talking about this for a while. And, you know, Matt, you and I have been talking about this for probably the better part of the last year. And I've been sitting and thinking about this for close to three years now, I realize, about launching this podcast and, you know, various life things jumping in the way and, you know, finding really the right people and the right time to get into a podcast like this for me was very important. I just didn't want to start recording, you know, things in my living room, talking to myself about things that I thought were cool. I really <laughs> wanted to find some some people that were outside of my uh, kind of echo chambers and the normal people that I travel with to kind of challenge me on how I'm looking at the concept of, of humanity and technology and how technology can also bring out both the best and the worst qualities of us as a species. So really excited to, to start recording with you guys and uh, get some of this stuff moving, have some really cool conversations with some really amazing people. Absolutely. You know, in terms of kind of news of humanity and technology, you know, we're we're recording this in uh, January of 2020, which first of all, the concept that it's 2020 to me is just crazy. Matt and I are of a similar generation. And, you know, Laura, you're, you're kind of our resident uh, uh, younger generational representative here to kind of keep us honest on the things that we take as rote for uh, pop culture and things of that nature. But when I was a kid growing up, and Matt, I'm sure you can you can kind <laughs> of go. sympathize with this, is, you know, we really thought we'd be living in a much different world than we are in it. And, and, you know, on one hand, I'm very impressed with the technology that we've have and the amount of connectedness we have to other human beings. I mean, think about this. There's three of us on a podcast right now. We're going to be talking to a guest a little bit later. And it you know, we're in three different locations representing very different parts of the country, very different socioeconomic landscapes. You know, I'm here in, in Carson City, Nevada, near Lake Tahoe, you know, beautiful, majestic mountains, but, you know, relatively conservative socially, for the most part, uh, rebelling against some of the, the social growth <laughs> that's happening with the influx of, of uh, Californians to the state. You know, Matt, you lived here for a while. Now you're in Montana. You know, Laura, you yeah. grew up in, in, in New York. You spent some time on the West Coast and now you're living in New York City. And you know, just the fact that technology can bring us together to have conversations like this and talk about cool stuff is to me amazing. The thing I'm really disappointed about is I don't have a jetpack. <laughs> I don't have a flying car. I can't teleport. I don't have a food synthesizer. I mean, you know. What about you guys? What, what What's surprising you about where we are 2020 technology-wise? Well, you know, it's funny because uh, something just hit me the other day. My my daughter for Christmas got um, one of these Gizmo watches. And uh, it, it's it's funny. Uh, I remember back when I was a kid thinking thinking about the concept of the phone watch and about how that was such a futuristic concept. You know, and it's just like, wow, the, how the Dick cool Tracy would that watch. Be? 
Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, this is a concept that we've been thinking about since like the forties, right? Forties, fifties. And, um, but it was always something that seemed so far out of reach and like, oh yeah, that'll never happen. And I think, I think that's, that's one interesting aspect of kind of the way tech has gone. You know, when we're talking about wearable functional tech, uh, that that's something that not only have we realized it, but we almost now are taking it for granted. And that tech has evolved into something that can now give us biofeedback. Uh, and it can help us as uh, as a tool for uh, something positive, like a positive influence on our, on our health and wellness. And so uh, it's interesting that we're talking about this now because I was just talking with my wife about it the other day. Like, man, could you imagine this this existing even ten years ago? And and uh, it's it's cool to see how quickly it's evolving and and the direction that it's taking uh, in in shaping our lives that way. Laura, you grew up connected to the world for the most part, right? I mean- no. <laughs> this is our running joke, Charlie and I. Um, <laughs> so because uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm actually the younger one in the relationship. And uh, I'm actually, even though I'm like in years younger, I'm actually the older one. Um I'm actually 64 years old, uh, even though <laughs> uh, even though I'm I'm a little bit younger than that. Um, but uh, I grew up the uh, luddite. Yes, and I grew up <laughs> with um, a massive uh, a massive piece of furniture for a TV. Um, it was mostly wood. Uh, the screen was really tiny, and uh, once it died, uh, we didn't have a TV anymore. Uh, so the whole the whole project was you read a book, you go outside, um, and you don't spend more than fifteen minutes on the computer per day. Um, so it was a really actually weird experience. A lot of my friends uh, growing up when I was in high school had cell phones, and uh, it just didn't really it wasn't really a thing. I didn't have a telephone. I had a track phone when I uh, when I came into college, uh, which is kind of weird and you know whatever for being for being a young person. Um, so it kind of. Uh, it, when I spend time with Charlie and I'm reading all of these new articles and seeing all of these new uh, developments, uh, talking with with people that I'm working with, or you know, just reading reading new content, I'm just constantly amazed at all that there is. And honestly, for me, it it gives me uh, a little bit of empathy for younger generation, for older generations rather, uh, because it does take me a little bit of time to kind of understand and wrap my brain around all of these new concepts. But, Things like the, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of the uh, the brain scans. You're talking a little bit about the biofeedback, Matt. Um, the brain scans that Dr. Amen um, and, and a lot of different people, the SPECT, the SPECT brain scans are just fascinating to me. That's I think that's the most uh, powerful and impactful thing in, in my uh, field of work and study. And um, the fact that we can understand and really wrap our brains literally around uh, getting a visual of where the brain activity is and how what we consume, how our activity, how our thoughts can then shift what that image looks like. I think that's just super so profound uh, and so powerful um, that we have to just take advantage of that. I I absolutely agree. And and I'm going to take an opportunity here to W the spiritual boomer of the podcast. So from now on, (laughs) when you go down a Luddite rant, we're just, Matt and I are both going to go, okay, boomer. (laughs) (laughs) So it it is pretty amazing. I mean, we do live in, in strange and wonderful times and uh, you know, being in January, uh, I'm always excited to see what comes out of the CES uh, consumer electronics show. And, you know, there's always one or two really interesting things. And, you know, this was the the first year uh, that they actually allowed sex toys. I'm going to whisper that sex toys uh, on on the CES floor because it was such a controversial thing in the past. And, you know, it's very interesting uh, how certain words or certain things uh, we we like to be very quiet about. We're cautious about talking about them. But, you know, the concept of mental health, sexual health, you know, personal health, physical health, all of these things are very important. And the more we talk about them, the more we bring them forward, I think the better we are as a species, the better we are as human beings. And there was a lot of interesting things on the show floor at CES, you know, about all of those things, the mental health aspects, the physical health aspects, the sexual health aspects, 
you know, things really meant to help people, entertain people, distract people from all the crazy news of the world. Uh, but the thing that was most interesting to me is this concept that came forward from Samsung called Neon. And it actually got leaked the day before they were set to announce it. And, and I happened to catch the videos that were floating around on Twitter and other places. And it kind of blew my mind. And, you know, having worked in technology for 20 years, there's not a lot that I come across that blows my mind. This kind of blew my mind because, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to people about, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning and things of that nature. And you realize after some time that, you know, there's a lot more hype in those spaces right now than there are real things that are out there, you know, doing doing what you expect it to do. But Neon mm -hmm. really kind of scared me in some ways with how... Yeah, realistic it was. And, and, you know, and I'll kind of give you the background on it for those of you who haven't looked at it. And we'll make sure we put a link in the show notes for those of you who are listening. But really what it is, it is a virtual human surrogate. And it's very, very God, interesting. That just so, sounds so freaking creepy when you say it like that. But it's true. It is. It, it's, it's so, so they creepy. It is. It's crazy. And, you know, the more you look at it and the more you watch it and the more you watch the demos of how they interact with these neons. And they, so the, the company that Samsung, you know, launched as a part of this is called Neon. The AIs, the individual entities, are called neons individually. So a singular one is a neon AI. You know, multiples are neons, et cetera. So, you know, they're kind of you know, putting a name around these entities. And they had human models that were the basis of these AI. And they, you know, I don't know how they did it. I don't know what the technology involved is. And I keep reading everything I can get my hands on about it. But they, they literally scanned these folks. They recorded them speaking. They recorded their tones. They recorded their, you know, their facial animations. And they fed it into this AI and created these <laughs> virtual surrogates for these. I think it was 10 different uh, people. And it is uncanny um the ability these ais have to you know make facial expressions that look human you, when you're watching the videos you believe you're watching a human being and they can interact in real time they are conversational uh you know uh, they they have the ability to go outside of their program parameters of responses and put together new responses and literally have a conversation and this is the first time I've seen AI to this level, you know, uh, and who knows, you know, how much of that is smoke and mirrors at this point, how much of it was polished for the demo. But it seems like there is some real tech behind that emulating these humans and the repercussions of it are just kind of uh, blowing my mind. Uh, you know, what do you guys think of this? Well, I, it, you know what? It's crazy. So so there are uh, different instances of this same general concept uh, out in, in the science fiction world. And this is nothing new. Um, but, but when I first saw this, uh, it brought to mind. So my wife got hooked, uh, in, into the DC universe, <laughs> uh, within the past couple of years. And one of the shows that, that was kind of her, um, her introduction to the DC universe was Supergirl. Yes. It's and, funny. My daughter was watching Supergirl last night and I hadn't seen the show and I'm a, I'm a comic superhero, you know, fanatic and I hadn't seen it yet. And so I was you know, watching some casually as I was cooking dinner and I think I'm gonna go back and watch it. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because, um, I, I think if memory serves, this concept is, is written into the show because that's sort of, um, you know, how Superman has his fortress of solitude and everything. Um, I think that that's that's how she kind of reconnects with her with her mother, because uh, her mother yeah. is is long gone. Um, but this is sort of essentially this concept, and it's the way that her mother kind of interacts with her and kind of gives her guidance and that type of thing. And um, it's just it's just crazy to think that you know going back to the to the to the the, the Gizmo watch, you know, it's tech that we that we never back in the day thought possible, and like here we are. Like this thing here was written into science fiction because it's one of those things that's super cool and, and a, 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 an interesting concept, but like, oh no, it's a thing. So I don't know my, my perspective on it. Cool, but creepy. I don't know. Laura, what do you think? Well, so I, uh, I do find it creepy myself. 
Um, that being said, I think it could be a really interesting uh, differentiation tool for people who aren't really understanding the difference between uh, using technology for good, using robots for good. Um, obviously, at least I hope, uh, these robots can actually feel. They can't be empathetic. They, uh, they don't have that human connection, even though they... Am I wrong? Is, am I missing something? Is there some? Did did you hear anything about uh, that they can be empathetic or feel anything? Uh, not at this point, right? It's it's very okay. interesting. So I, I've and we'll have to get some folks on the show that are deep domain experts on where AI is going and the whole concept of of empathy and you know human feelings and whether a, whether a piece of technology or a piece of code can feel the way a human does. And and I think this is this is uh, for me the creepiest aspect of is of it is it's starting to blur the lines of the self. And yes. at what point mm. does your likeness and your identity now become someone else's? At what point do you sign off the rights to your likeness? And what what are the ethical implications of that? Even deeper is think about this is if you authorize this, you create this neon entity that is basically an extension of you in some ways, right? Beyond ownership, that thing has the potential to outlive you, right? And, you know, this brings on a whole nother, you know, set of ethical conundrums around you know, what is death? You know, when when your human body passes, but your AI avatar surrogate lives on, is that you continuing to live on as a legal entity? You know, do your instead of going to a gravesite and mourning you, do do your friends and family interact with this AI, much like you were talking about with Supergirl earlier? I just, you know, we could literally spend, you know, hours and hours and hours just plumbing the depths of of what does this mean to people when we start building these these technical surrogates that can not only emulate how we sound, how we look, how we respond, you know, our phrasing, uh, you know, our sentiment, things of that nature. But what if they do start feeling right? Can our avatar, you know, have an emotional connection with our loved ones, you know, based off of our own emotional connection with that? Can it live on beyond us? I just, it just blows my mind. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it kind of brings to mind uh, something that my grandfather used to tell me way back in the day, just because you can do something, doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And so my question is, what what are so are you know the creep factor aside, our our personal uh, opinions of it aside, my my biggest question going back to the developers of this tech is what is yeah. the purpose of it? What are the long-term potential benefits that we can gain societally and and personally um, as a result of the the development of this technology? Because yep. to me, right now, that that part of it isn't clear. It, it almost is. Um, it almost is sort of tantamount to like, hey, look what I can yeah. do. Isn't this cool? Yeah, and, and I think that but, that's where a lot of this text coming from right now is let's push the envelope. And you know, I was doing some interesting reading last night about the, you know, uh, the concept of, you know, the more we explore the boundaries of technology, the more we end up pushing those. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes that came from uh, one of the founders of Twitter, Ev Williams, and it was a Medium post. And it, very interesting, the concept of how we mm. approach innovation and, um, you know, the concept of adjacency is I do this today and, I, you know, and what are the things that I can do on top of the thing that I'm doing to innovate? Right. As opposed to going out and doing this greenfield stuff. So very interesting, that whole concept. So. We do have an interview to do, uh, so I'm going to you know, kind of wrap up this, this part of the show so we can move on to the interview, but I'm going to ask one question to each of you. Would you do it? Would you would you build a neon surrogate of yourself? I think if I you would. I mean, if you think about all of the minutiae, all of the stuff that you are wanting to do on a day to day basis, um, you could have your robot neon self do all the cooking and meal prep, and uh, you know, if you could choreograph them to go to the gym for you, that would be great. Think about all of the work that you could get done. <laughs> you need to go watch the Bruce Willis movie Surrogates. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm torn. Uh, my, my, my gut is kind of telling me, no, uh, I don't think I would do it. I, I think if I'm going to be represented and, and my likeness is going to be represented, uh, potentially conveying, uh, a, a thought or an opinion, 
I want to know that it is absolutely mine mm-hmm. and and not that of uh, an algorithm. That is true. You don't have control. Yeah, that's where I'm at too. I, I'm kind of on the fence. I need to learn a lot more about kind of the the concept of agency, my personal agency, the agency of the the digital entity that I'd be creating, and at what point does does my agency and their agency diverge if they do achieve some level of sentience? Um, you know, beyond that, yeah, really, there's a whole lot of I think ethical questions and concerns we need to address as a society as we move forward on it, and you know, I, I'm just kind of looking forward to it. And now for our guest, Charles Araujo, or for those of us who know him well, Charlie. Uh, Charlie's an industry analyst, internationally recognized authority on digital enterprise and the author of three books, count them three, including the international bestseller, The Quantum Age of IT, Why Everything You Know About IT Is About to Change. Charles is also a principal analyst with Intellix. He writes, speaks, and advises organizations on how to navigate through this time of disruption. He's also the founder of the Institute for Digital Transformation, is a keynote speaker at a variety of conferences around the globe, and has recently uh, become the founder, along with Laura, his wife, who is one of our co-hosts of the MAPS Institute. Charles, welcome. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's uh, always fun to chat with you, and now we get to do it, uh, well, almost live and for a whole bunch of folks. It's going to be great. Yeah, I, I was actually thinking back the other day about uh, the, our little uh, tit-for-tat uh, webinar we did about 10 years ago that uh, apparently they ruined the recording of and we had to go back and re-record. I do want to say we were brilliant in both takes, but I think the lost episode was probably the best. Maybe someone will uncover it you know, someday long after we're gone and it'll be famous. Who knows? Hundreds of years for now, they'll they'll find it on a lost hard drive. And Boy, wonder, we think well of ourselves, don't we? Okay, Charlie, I'm gonna uh, you know kind of just ask you here. I, I know what you've been working on. You've had a lot of focus on uh, kind of digital transformation in the past, and and trying to get people to recognize the fact that the world around them is changing. And and some things you've written and written recently have kind of caught my eye. Uh, you know, first is. You know, the reference you've been making to uh, the digital era, and I know some people are talking about it in terms of being kind of the fourth industrial revolution, but you've got an industry, interesting take on it around the fact that you really see it as the industrial age coming to its end uh, and really is a, way, a beginning point of redefining how we organize ourselves from work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And if you don't mind, I'm going to play politician and ask the question that I, I wanted you to ask. Um, so the, um, the the roots of this really, right? I mean, my, my first book was called The Quantum Age of IT, Why Everything You Know About IT is About to Change. And, and it's because I was focused on IT transformation, right? That's where I came from. I'm an IT guy at my core. And that was really the, the foundation of it. And I ended up, uh, I, I wrote that book and suddenly I'm getting invitations to speak all over the world. And, what, and it's, at some point, it led to a speaking tour through New Zealand. I was speaking at like five different events over 10 days. And one of those was something called the Digital Disruption Conference. And it was sort of like uh, New Zealand's answer to TED Talks. It was hosted by the Auckland University of Technology and the U.S. Embassy. And it was a non-IT audience. It was CEOs and academics. It was tech startups. It was sort of like the business elite of Auckland. And I realized I, I can't go in there and talk about IT transformation. And it's just not going to be relevant. And so it forced me to step back and ask how all these forces that I've been researching and writing about and talking about, how they were actually affecting the broader world outside of IT. And so that's what led me to focus on digital transformation. Like I said, that was about five years ago before it was really cool, before anyone was really talking about it much. And so it, it sort of put me on this journey that I've been on ever since of sort of exploring this and trying to figure out, well, where was this leading? What was really happening? And, and so now to your question, where, where that has led in the last, I don't know, 18 months or so is this sort of recognition that that yeah, this wasn't just the run-of-the-mill change that we've seen before, that this is um, even more than generational, that this is a, a massive shift where I do believe the, in, the industrial age is coming. Now, I think coming to an end, I do think that it, it is well in line with a lot of the industry 4.0 or fourth industrial revolution kind of ideas. But the reason I say it, it is fundamentally different is it represents this kind of fundamental shift in how we created value in organizations. In that in the industrial age, it was about producing a mass market, a mass product for a mass market, delivering it as efficiently as possible. And therefore, the way you created value was by optimizing the core, as I call it, or, or these different supply chains and mechanisms that were necessary to do so. And what we've seen, this whole what we would now call digital disruption over the last 10 or 15 years, is that organizations have disrupted these longstanding industries and longstanding companies, not by out-optimizing them but instead by disrupting and transforming the customer experience. And so 
I believe the customer experience is now this new driver of business value. And that is going to lead to an entire transformation of business models, operating models, and ultimately how work is done itself. And so that's why I think it's a completely different thing. And when I call it the digital era, that's what I mean. Excellent. That, that's very interesting, the, your take on it. I, I mean, as you know, I spent a lot of time in this space myself uh, and talking to uh, a number of corporate entities, startups, companies, and others uh, around kind of where the world is going as we move into this more human age, I call it. Um, you said something else about uh, recently about, you know, the human side of this. What does that mean to you? Well, so, so there's actually what I think are two macro trends that are intersecting. So the first is basically what I just talked about. I, I boil that down to what I call the primacy of the customer, right? So, so that's this one macro trend that's affecting kind of how organizations create value. But the other one is what I call the, the primacy of the algorithm. And, and the foundation here is that, that in the, the rise of the industrial age, these industrial barons needed effectively robots. They needed they need the ability to produce these mass products reliably, consistently. And so, so they didn't have robots, right? This was 150 years ago. So what did they do? They effectively trained humans to be those robots, to show up at the factory, to show up at the office and do the same repeatable task consistently over and over and over again. And, and really, we end up creating an entire societal structure to support that. Well, we're now coming to this point, this tipping point, I believe, where we are reaching algorithms, automation, AI. We're getting to the point where we don't actually need human robots to do these jobs anymore because we can have real robots actually do them now. And so what I believe that's going to lead to is what uh, the hopefully the subject of my fourth book when I finally get it written is called the new human age, this era in which it is in fact the fundamental human drivers that become the source of both organizational and individual value um, as we go. Because for most organizations, technology is going to be normalized. So the way we're going to differentiate ourselves individually and organizationally is by unleashing these very human characteristics. And so that, that's where I see this all kind of going. So, Charlie, I, I, I come from a very, I don't know, I would necessarily call it a traditional space, um, but I do work in a more traditional space, more um, ag-related. And uh, obviously the integration of technology uh, and and what that means in terms of uh, an operational structure is going to be different. Uh, but at the same time, I think it is clearly, um, I would say, uh, unavoidable that this is going to have an impact kind of across the board. Uh, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what you're doing, no matter what your job title is, clearly this is going to have an impact on you both as an individual uh, your department, and sort of even uh, higher than that, uh, the entire organization. The question then becomes, if I am working or, or my company exists in that space, what are the realistic initial steps that I should do to make sure that I'm taking advantage of those opportunities as they present themselves? Uh, what should I be focusing on? Uh, where is the noise? And, and what's really the most important aspect of that next wave. So let's see, uh, how many hours yeah, do I have to answer yet. that question? <laughs> Knowing um, you, so, about you know, 10% sorry. of what you normally do. <laughs> so look, I think it's a great question because so many people are sort of missing the boat on this. Um, I, I would argue that, that we are all in a race, at least organizationally, we are all in a race to carve out, it's like the, the wild, wild west, right? A, a, a race to this uncharted territory and most organizations, despite all the hype and all the talk and all the stuff that's been going on, most organizations do not even realize the race they're running yet. Because there's, there's going to be this massive divide. There's, you know, all, I, you've, I'm sure you've read the stuff about every company is a software company. stuff. I don't buy it for a minute. There, there are going to be the technology providers of the world, and we already have all those. We'll have new ones come, and we're going to see that evolution continuing. And they're going to be providing technology to the rest of these organizations. But there's a massive number of services and, and products that we consume that are not tech products, and they, and they never will be. And, and that's a good thing. And so those organizations, for everyone who's not an actual tech company, where your business is not producing technology, if your business is delivering a service to a customer who's consuming that or consuming that product in sort of an everyday way, like, like we do all the time, 
then the question is, how much of a differentiator is technology going to be? And I think the answer in the long haul is going to be not that much. And so the, because, because those technology companies are going to be providing the same technology to everybody. The difference is going to be how we can harness our people in these very human ways to actually create differentiation value. So to answer your question, what am I focused on? If I'm, if I'm leading one of these org organizations today, I'm focused on basically two core things. The first is trying to get ahead of my customer, trying to put my, myself in their shoes, seeing where they see the world going, what their expectations and how they're adapting, but not asking them. You know, Steve Jobs was famous at one point for saying it's not the customer's job to know what they want. So you have to get in, into their head, into their shoes and get ahead of where their expectations are going and then completely reorient and transform your organization around where that is. And that's placing some big ass bets, right? And so I think this is, this is for the enterprise leaders that this is the big job in front of them is to be brave enough to blow it all up. To, to figure out where that's going and to be willing to disrupt themselves, but to do it not in the name of technology, but in the name of what these evolving customer expectations are going to be. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'm doing is investing in people and investing people not in teaching them how to write code, although you, we're definitely going to need that, but it's really about how to engender creativity, imagination, and empathy, how to come up with ideas that nobody has thought of before or new ways of approaching this that somebody has said, oh no, we've tried that before, it'll never work this time around and how to actually be able to engage with customers on a human level because as technology becomes more ingrained in everything we're doing what all of us are going to want what we're going to crave is that human connection and my last little point on this I know I talked too long but it is if you remember a decade ago or so or maybe 15 years ago and video conferencing and all this was the technology was finally getting there and there's all these all these calls that says oh the the conference the physical conference is dead and what have we seen? We've seen the exact opposite because as, as we're now in this constantly connected world, what do we crave more than anything? The physical connection, to physically be in the same place with people, shake their hand, have a, a drink or a meal with them, and to have that connection. And so I think we're going to see that multiplied across every dimension, across every industry, across every organization. Yeah, I'm seeing that a lot in my professional travels as well. The the idea of human connectedness is becoming key. You're seeing a lot of companies embrace the concept of human-centered design and design thinking and putting people back at the center of the technology. And you know, for those of us who worked in the enterprise software space through the 90s and early 2000s, we realized that the tools that we put in place and force people to use to do their jobs were not there to make that job easier for that person. They were there to make the job easier for the person at the top of the food chain to sort through data and make decisions. And, and we're seeing, I think, a reversal of that and a mm. genuine focus on making the, the, the work that people do every day easier and better for them. Well, and you know, it's, it's, so it goes back this, you know, as you know, Shane, I'm, I'm sort of this 50,000 foot guy and I've been fortunate in my career to, to be able to live there most of the time. But, um, you know, if you, if you think about why that is, it's because almost every piece of technology we've ever created um, up until maybe the last few years has been about this idea of optimization, right? Everything was about how do I make things more efficient? So it wasn't about improving the customer experience or the employee experience or making life better or easier for my customers or my employees. It was about how do I drive efficiency? And that wasn't evil, right? It was that's how we created value. So, you know, the good news, at least from my perspective, is that value equation is shifting and that means that all of this is going to change with it. But that's going to represent a massive cultural transformation, right, of how people think about not only the structures that we use in organizations and the technology we use, but how we apply it. And so that's the, the I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see this play out. Absolutely. So, Charlie, I know you talked a lot about uh, the macro side of this and the transformation and the, the uh, steps that we have to take in order to make those macro transformations. Uh, about getting ahead of the customer, transforming your, transforming your organization and investing in people. But on the micro level, how are you recommending, what are you prescribing uh, that you begin in transformation on the micro level? And how are you enacting that human connection in your work? Well, I love how you ask that question as if we're not married and you don't know what the answer is. But <laughs> the... I'm just, I'm just curious, Charlie. <laughs> no. Tell the no, people. That was, so, that was a, the leading question, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's the, the micro is where this starts getting both difficult and interesting uh, on a couple of levels. The first is, is that 
we as humans have been trained through this industrial age mentality or modality even that, that you know, we have a, a, uh, an equation. We go to school, get a good degree, get good grades, you get a good job, you, you know, you work for the company. And even though that's been falling apart, there's still a whole bunch of people, and I would argue most people, still sort of have that. Even if they're not living it, they still have it sort of ingrained in their heads. And so I think bringing this down, there, there, there needs to be a personal transformation of changing the way we look at ourselves, the way we engage with our organizations, with the work we do. And that is a, as, as Laura will say, right, a, a reprogramming or a re, actually, what do you say? Reorchestrating, right? Um, re-choreographing re um, of it. And so, so the question is, how do you do that? Now, so I think there's two levels. I think the, the, the reason we formed the, the MAPS Institute, the reason that Laura has been creating this program called the MAPS, um, the, the MAPS program is it's about that micro re-choreographing of how we individually interact and that's it's it's a very personal thing and, and the good news is it's, it's it is the ultimate cross-functional lesson meaning it's going to apply no matter what you choose to do in your life it's going to apply in your relationships it's going to apply in how you approach health and fitness it's it's literally applying to every aspect of your life i think specifically from a corporate perspective um it, it's so you know going to matt's question right well what would i be doing it's it's helping people bring these human characteristics but as i talk about in my keynotes if I were to, you know, if we were in a workshop and I, and I tell you three, okay, your job is to go become more creative, more imaginative, and more empathetic, you're going to walk out of the room. Even if I manage to somehow fire you up, you're, you're going to walk out of there and scratch your head and go, how do I do that, right? What does that even mean? And most of us believe those are innate human things that we actually can't develop. Well, I, A, I don't actually believe that, but, but B, you can't really quote unquote do them. And so this idea of these kind of foundational set of, of, characteristics or attributes that we can develop and and encourage i think is where i put that energy so so i call that ace stands for awareness curiosity and engagement and these are building blocks things that we can do every day and i believe we can do these in the in the corporate setting where we simply are focusing on being aware of our surroundings of what's important of what's happening and just not necessarily judging it but just just kind of being in that moment around it being curious about what is going on and and engaging in intellectual curiosity and the last is engagement engagement which is both exploring something um, individually but also then um, with others and and the, the hard part about all three of these is they are the complete antithesis of what most organizations expect when we are measuring things like productivity we're measuring you know project performance um, it's it's almost impossible to do these things and to have people not look at you like you're flipping nuts. And so this is, you know, as a leader, you need to be creating space for this. You need to allow people to, to be embracing these skills and investing in them. Um, and, you know, the good news is we're starting to see some, you know, the whole idea of fail fast is actually a part of this ethos. There's a whole bunch of movements afoot to help people start to go down that road. But but I think on a micro level, that's where it's going to be. The, I think the hardest thing that my last word on this from a corporate standpoint is that these are things that in the end, the best we're going to do is inspire people to take their own initiative to pursue this because you can't really just go send someone to a week-long class and you know have it miraculously happen. So we're going to have to transform the way we approach education as well and employee empowerment to help people understand what this is, why it's important and take on the initiative to get themselves there. Um, along those lines, you, you mentioned some of these key skill sets that people need to focus on and develop. And, and you mentioned also that you don't believe that uh, some of these things are something people are born with. It is something they can kind of tune their muscle, flex their muscle around. In that line, you know, where does kind of things like emotional intelligence fit into this. You know, that's one of those things that people classically say is something that you have to be born with and you can develop that and fine tune that, but it's really hard to teach someone emotional intelligence when they don't display those attributes. Yeah. So, so maybe more Laura's area than mine, actually. I'm not, I don't certainly don't hold myself at a, as a EQ kind of um, expert, but here, here's, so let me, I'll, I'll answer a little bit more broadly. Um, I, I think all of these attributes, um, awareness, curiosity, engagement, um, all of them, even when we talk about creativity, how many times have we heard someone say, I'm not a creative person? Um, 
I actually think that these are innate human skills. We're all born with them. We all have them. Um, maybe some it comes more naturally to than others, right? Fair enough. But all of these can be developed. All of these can be enhanced. Now, I do think there's something to be said for understanding your strengths and understanding your weaknesses and playing to your strengths. I'm a big believer of, of not trying to develop all of your weaknesses, but rather instead to acknowledge them, accept them, and to instead focus on your strengths. And I think we're going to see the same thing in this, right? You, you may not, in the end, be the quote-unquote most creative person, but part of that is also a redefinition, right? I'll get to that in a second. You know, but, but you may, on the other hand, be highly empathetic. And so, therefore, that's where you should focus um, when we're looking at how you build out these, these human skills. But regardless, I mean, so I'm, I'm a classic example. Um, you, you may, Shane, because you and I have a, a very great relationship, and I actually give you all the credit for it because uh, there's a lot of people that over the life of, you know, my career and just my human existence, you know, people refer to me as, quote unquote, Spock, right? The, the unemotional guy that can sit in the corner by himself and be perfectly happy with no human interaction. And, and I can easily come away as very unempathetic. And Laura, don't Amen. But um <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but in reality, in reality, in the quiet of my mind, I'm extremely empathetic. I'm extremely emotional in many ways, but for whatever reason, the way I'm programmed, whether that's, I don't, I honestly don't know, maybe I need to see a therapist about you know, my history of childhood or something, but it's like, there's always this thing that stops me from letting it out. So can I develop it? Absolutely. It's going to be hard work as, as uh, one of Laura's sayings is, to be willing to sit in your discomfort. And, and I've, I've always taken that phrase to mean that you have to be willing to do this, the hard work of, of kind of doing a little suffering, of, of having to accept the fact that it's not gonna be easy. And so I think we're all gonna have decisions to make as we look across the landscape, whether that's emotional intelligence, whether it's one of these more specific kind of elements, whatever it is, and decide where we invest and what's important to us. Um, you know, for me, I will tell you, that's something I'm working on because it is important to me. It's important to my relationships. It's something I want to be better at. And so trying to figure out how to put that effort in to, to help release that. I really think that, uh, you know, a, that a reflection that awareness is both an external and an internal thing. Definitely, definitely. Um, absolutely. And it's also something that's oftentimes not really nurtured uh, or seen as something that's worthwhile in a lot of organizations, I feel. Um, but Charlie, going back to my question is, uh, what does that process look like in your mind? Or, you know, if you had this, you know, your fantasy, your ideal situation, what would that actually look like in an organization uh, kind of working beginning on the micro level and as well as on the, on the macro level uh, to see that shift? Uh, how do organizations nurture and provide a space for on on a person-to-person -person level to cultivate, recultivate, because uh, it already exists, that curiosity, that empathy, and that awareness? So, you know, what's interesting is I think it's a great question because one of the things we can't forget, um, you know, Laura and I have this thing about, you know, is it too woo-woo, right? And this idea that some of this stuff can get really quickly especially if you're a, a corporate executive or an enterprise leader listening to this, right? Very quickly can start to sound way too touchy-feely. And, and here's the thing, we have to recognize organizations um, are, are, exist to produce a product or service and deliver it to the market, right? That's, that's what we're doing in these organizations and we can't forget that. And in addition, dis despite the fact that I do believe that there's a massive transformation that organizations have to go through, that doesn't mean that they can simply stop everything they're doing to do that. Um, there's a book a few years ago, um, I think it was called Execution by the CEO of Allied Signal. And, and he was, I mean, I loved this book because it was like climbing inside the head of a Fortune 500 CEO and, and how they did this. And, and, and a lot of times I think, you know, if you're not in that role, you're looking at this person and saying, oh, they don't get it. They don't understand. We have to do this. We have to change right now. And, and what you really find by reading this book is, no, no, they absolutely understand that, but they also have to meet the next quarterly earnings call and they have to, you know, there's all of these things. And so organizationally, the organization has to continue to function. It has to continue to produce. It has to continue to meet its, its business objectives. But for its survival, it's also going to have to be in the midst of this transformational process. And so the trick and the question is, how do you marry those two together? How do you find and create space where people can be exploring this without it feeling like, hey, this is just a complete waste of time and it's quote unquote too woo woo. 
And I think I think the um, the interesting part of the answer, in my opinion, is that it's going to be um, what I call the sticky nougat in the middle. So in large organizations, you have the executive team, you have the the people that are on the ground doing all the work, and then you have this this often very large layer of middle management. A I think that middle management, as we move into this era, we're going to see it thin significantly as we move into things like self-organization and things like agile models start being deployed more into uh, the business realm outside of technology. So I think we're going to see a thinning of that. It's going to, we're going to see information flow move much more quickly. But, but secondly, I think it's going to be that layer that's going to be absolutely critical because they're the ones that are going to have to bridge that divide. And, and part of this is, uh, in fact, I would say it starts with leading by example of to Shane's earlier point about being introspectively aware of recognizing the cultural dynamics within your team of creating that space. So an example of a, of a simple technique, and I mean, look, I think, you know, we've been talking about this, Laura, right? We need to probably write a book about exactly how to do this. Um, but a, a simple example, 20 years ago, I, we had a massive failure. I was running in a part of an IT organization with this massive failure. And after the resolution, we did the the, the kind of the meeting where everyone gets together to, to talk about what happened, right? And I opened the meeting by saying, and, and I brought, the, these people all didn't work for me. It was people from across the organization, but I was leading this meeting. And I opened it by saying, okay, let me get this off on the table. This is not about finding blame. It says, this buck stopped with me. This was my fault. I've already accepted responsibility with all upper management. This is not about that. This is about making sure it doesn't happen again. And we started going around the table, just deconstructing what happened. And it started just as an information sharing. And what was interesting is, is it took, I'd say, a good solid 45 minutes before people started recognizing that, that there wasn't any retribution that was coming. And they started actually just having an open conversation about what happened. And as we started doing that, the light bulb started going out, getting off because it was all this miscommunication, all these bad assumptions. And we got done with this. I had two of, um, and they were peers of mine come up to me afterwards and says, you know, that was maybe the best debrief meeting I've ever had because I felt like I actually know not only how to go and fix some of my problems, but how to communicate with my peers so that we don't have that kind of situation again. And it, it's about creating that space. And so I think that this middle management layer is going to be absolutely critical because that's what's going to open the door to more of the touchy-feely stuff that I think has to happen as we reframe and reprogram ourselves as humans. So, so question for you, Charlie, kind of along those lines um, and, and kind of pivoting the, the, the paradigm a little bit um, more in terms of as you've been out and you've been uh, doing more speaking, you've been meeting more people all around the world. Uh, you know, inevitably, when you start talking about things on such a grand scale and as broad sweeping as this, uh, you're, you're going to have two things. The first thing is the light bulb is going to start going on and, and people are going to start understanding. They're going to start to know what they don't know. The other side of that is inevitably there is going to be that resistance. This represents change. Um, this represents uh, a, a new way of having to do things um, and, and maybe not necessarily seeing it for what it is. Um, when you come across those people, because I'm envisioning you coming off the stage, and and talking with people after an event and someone standing there with their arms crossed <laughs> what what does that conversation typically sound like um how do you address it on both sides of the spectrum both both like wow i'm starting to understand it um now what or the other side of it um bullshit you know uh how do you address those people and, and what do you give them in terms of a perspective in order to grow from at that point? So, well, thankfully, I don't have too many people throwing tomatoes at me um, on or off stage so far. So that, that's been good. But, and, and you know what's interesting is I actually, I'm not seeing much of that. Here's what I'm saying. I, on the one hand, I have a handful of people come up to me and say and challenge my belief that you can teach curiosity or you can, you know, um, develop curiosity and awareness and engagement that these skills are, they, they are in fact skills. And that's normally an educational conversation where, you know, I'll point them to some resources and I'll explain kind of why I think that. Um, but that's even there, generally it's, it's like a desire. They want that to be true. They just didn't think it was. Um, 
And then, yes, yeah, so lots of light bulbs going off, lots of people. But but here's what – so it's not so much the arms crossed, but here's what I do see quite a bit. And I blame um, the, the technology companies for this. And even though I come from the tech industry, right, that the number of people when I'll go through and I'll talk about all this and their response is sort of like, eh, yeah, we've heard it all before. And not really recognizing exactly how how broad – and sweeping that this really is that we're talking about. That's the part that actually not only frustrates me, but scares me for their organizations. Um, and, and so I've had people, um, on the other hand, I've had like salespeople come up and talk to me and say, well, so if I'm talking to a customer and they're not getting this, like, what do we do? And my response generally is, well, go to sell to somebody else because they're probably not going to be around in the next five to 10 years. And, and, and so I think that's the big risk actually is that, you know, because of all the hype and because of all the, the stuff that's out there. And, and we've been, you know, again, I'm as guilty probably about as, as anybody. We, we talk about all of this stuff ad nauseum that it, it's a little bit of the, the chicken little syndrome where people aren't really believing exactly how momentous this is. Um, and it's also moving, you know, big, big, we're, this is a big shift and, you know, big ships don't change, you know, don't change course overnight. And so it's also not incredibly visible on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think, that there's those that are getting it. And this is actually part of why I, I've launched this uh, you know, new news, digital newsletter, digital journal called Your Digital Future. And, and I know full well that there's going to be a whole bunch of people that don't get it, don't see it, think it's all hype. And, you know, oh, well, there's nothing I can really do about that. They will, they will eventually see it. Hopefully it's not too late. But my focus is on those that do get it and that understand that this is, this is a significant change and that they want to get ahead of that. And how do they start doing that? And so, you know, my focus is on what I'm calling the digital era leader, which may or may not be a manager, but it's somebody who understands this, that, that, and they don't even have to understand everything that's happening, just that something big is happening and that they need to understand it as best they can. And, and I don't claim, by the way, to have all the answers that I, you know, have some magic ball. I actually have a, a crystal ball that I keep by my desk. It never helps though. And, you know, it's, it, this is about a constant state of exploration. The only thing I can say for certain is that everything we know is changing. And so the question is, how is it going to change and how can we put ourselves in a space where we are adaptable enough to be prepared for whatever may come? And that's really what I've been working on for the last three, four years now. What I hope the, the Your Digital Future uh, journal is going to help people prepare for. And, and that's really, I think, you know, what, if, if someone were to come to me and, and with their arms crossed, that would be my, my entreaty to them. It's like, look at just check this out there's no harm in learning about what it is we're talking about and if you still don't believe it then fine but i would you know my my personal opinion is you're better off preparing for this because there's virtually no downside the worst thing that happens you're just a better person you're happier you know it's so it's like this is what everyone should be really going down this road that kind of leads me to ask you a little bit about your new project that you're working on, Charlie. Um, you know, it seems very interesting to me. Uh, tell me about this book project for your next book and kind of the unique approach you're taking in terms of kind of exposing people to the, the process that you're going through and writing it kind of in a live way. Yeah. So this has been something that I've been talking about for a while, and I would say it is still very much an experiment. So I'm calling it my live book project. So I, I wrote my first three books the way most people write books. You lock yourself in a cave for a year or whatever, and you hammer this thing out. And and that's a great process. It's it's you know it's very introspective. It forces you to learn so much about yourself and to do all this research. My concern when it came to this one is that things are moving so fast and changing so dynamically that I was just concerned that that wasn't a very effective or efficient way of doing it. And so instead, um, I mentioned your, dig your digital future, this journal, effectively, that is going to become the foundation for what the fourth book, The New Human Age, is all about. And so th these are effectively one and the same because New Human Age is talking about these two intersecting macro trends, and it's going to lead to here are the skills you need to develop. And so everything you find in your digital future is is in some cases word for word going to be in the book and in some cases it's going to be adapted um but it's it's about this sort of you know back and forth and what i really hope and, and just bluntly we're not there yet but what i hope is that as people start paying attention to it that i actually get feedback and effectively the the book evolves you know as a bit almost as a community effort to a certain extent as because I, I do want to hear i mean like matt i loved your question i want to hear what people are hearing i want to know if they're sitting there with their arms crossed i want to know if they're trying this stuff you know, to Laura's question about, well, how are you doing this at a micro level if they're trying it and it's not working? 
right? I think that's going to be so vital because at the end of the day, we're, we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to figure this out and we're all going to be evolving together, which, which by the way, is, is why I will also say that there is opportunity in chaos. We, we're going to enter this period in which it is incredibly chaotic. And, and you know, the phrase I'm using, all the rules are changed. And, and some of them may, in fact, survive, but we don't know which ones those are yet. And so the, the big benefit there is this is a normalizing function that effectively the, the slate is being wiped clean and we are all kind of having to start here. So, so you know, if you're, a, if you're a big CEO with, you know, millions and billions in the bank, you're probably good because you can just, you know, go to the Bahamas and write it out. But for the rest of us, all the things, you know, there's a, a guy by the name of Marshall Goldsmith who wrote a book years ago, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And he was specifically talking about executives who rose to a certain point in the organization. I think it now applies to everybody. What got all of us here is not going to get us there. And so we are all effectively starting from scratch. And that means that we all have a, a whole new opportunity in front of us. And so it's, it's going to be quite a ride. And so I'm, I'm hoping that, that we can kind of do this together in this live book experience or experiment is really part of that. Laura, did you want to get any uh, last-minute tough questions in on Charlie while we got him? Um, well, actually, so if uh, regarding this this uh, new book, the you called it the New Human Age, is that what it's called? Yes. Okay, the New Human Age book, uh, or the uh, the micro version of it, since we're going on the micro macro trend here, uh, the Your Digital Future email chain or email journal. Um, is there going to be an interactive facet so that people can uh, engage and uh, and find that transformation, even if it's on a on a smaller level? Yeah. So something that that's always been a a very important aspect to me, and frankly, I've 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 failed at this probably more than I've succeeded. But but something I've often believed is is that it's not enough to share information. Right. Information is the easy part. There's information mm -hmm. everywhere. It's what do you do with it? How do you act on it? And so what we're trying to do with your digital future is to make it action oriented. So the basic structure of every issue, and it's a, it's a weekly thing, is kind of put forward a big idea, explain the impact, and then what I call next steps, provide an exercise or something that, that the reader can do to put this into practice or to understand it more deeply so that there, there is that element of it. Um, now, in fairness, it's, they're going to be just by the nature of you know, kind of my work and the fact that it is macro level, um, it, it's really about cementing ideas, right? That's at, at the end of the day, that's kind of the business I consider myself in. I'm in the idea business. Um, but as you know, Laura, what, you know, what we're hoping to do with, with the MAPS Institute is to take that to a much deeper level. And so uh, under that banner, there's going to be, you know, the, the workshops and um, online programs and hopefully eventually an app to help people actually take this at a much, at a much deeper level. But in terms of your digital future, it's really going to be um, these, these kind of simple exercises, but just as a way to, to not just have the, the onslaught of information, but to make this something that people can actually act on and put into practice within themselves, their own lives and within their organizations. All very good stuff, Charles. So, uh, if someone listening here today were interested in finding out more information, where's the best place they could go to reach out to you or to find this information? Definitely my website is charlesarajo.com, and it's uh, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-A-R-A-U-J-O.com. And on there, there'll be all kinds of pop-ups, so it'll be hard to miss it, but the, the sign-up for Your Digital Future is, uh, is there as well. It is free for now. Um, I didn't mention that I am going to be um, actually charging for this. I think it's so valuable and important that uh, it will be something that it's going to be a, a paid thing down the road. But for right now, for anyone that signs up now, it's, it's free, and it'll be free forever for anybody who signs up now. Um, so that's it. And then, of course, please follow me on Twitter, Charles Rajo, um, Instagram, author Charles Rajo. And I'm sure you can put all the things and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. But trying to get better at putting more of this content out on, on social as well. So uh, hopefully there'll be plenty of opportunities to connect. Thank you very much. Excellent. And uh, we'll make sure to put the links to that and all your social media presence in the show notes so that folks who are listening uh, who are interested in finding more can get to it. With that, uh, you know, thank you very much, Charles, for spending some time with us here today. I want to thank Laura and Matt also for a great show. And uh, we'll go ahead and close things out. We'll see you next time.
We hope you enjoyed today's episode. On behalf of my fellow hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and myself, Shane Carlson, we'd like to thank you for listening. Be sure and check out our website at www.techno-biotic.com and be sure to follow us on all the usual social media outlets. Until next time. Technobiotic.